Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 758 of the Juicebox podcast. Every once in a while, a guest sneaks up on me a little bit. And I have to admit, I didn't know what I was getting when Mike came on the podcast, but My goodness, what a terrific conversation. Mike's going to tell you about himself in a minute, but he's had diabetes forever. He's a retired doctor, and I just love talking to him. That's it. I loved it. While you're listening, please remember that nothing you hear on the Juice Box podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan or becoming bold with insulin. If you'd like to do yourself a favor, other people with diabetes a favor, and me a favor, go to t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox. When you get there, join the registry, take the survey, complete the survey, and that's it. Then you've done the favor for all these people. You, them, me. t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox. The survey is simple questions about living with diabetes, things you understand. It's not going to be hard for you. It won't take very long. And when it's over, you'll have done a good thing. You must be a U.S. resident who has type 1 diabetes or is the caregiver of someone with type 1. This episode of the Juice Box Podcast is sponsored by Touched by Type 1. Please go to touchedbytype1.org and find them on Instagram and Facebook. The podcast is also sponsored by InPen from Medtronic Diabetes. The InPen is an insulin pen that does way more than you expect an insulin pen to do. And it also pairs to an app on your phone, inpentoday.com to learn more. My name is Dr. Michael Patipa, but I go by Mike. Um, I was an oculoplastic surgeon for 36 years. I'm 73 years old. I've had type 1 diabetes for 53 years. It has been a very interesting journey, and I have gone through many, many generations of technology, Mm -hmm. which has taken me to today, where I have a Dexcom, I have a tandem control IQ, and um, it has been an amazingly gratifying and simplifying evolution. Imagine. So So you were 20 when you were diagnosed? I was 20. Yes, I was 20. Um, May I give you a two-minute history on this? I would love that. All right. So I went for my army physical. It was a Vietnam war and I hadn't been accepted to medical school. And they told me, you have a little sugar in your urine. I said, what does that mean? He says, you're going to get diabetes. I said, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. I was a junior in, med- in college. My senior year, um, at the end of my senior year, I went overseas. I did not get into medical school initially. And my first month in medical school in Brussels, I went to the doctor and my blood sugar was 485. He said, you have diabetes. I said, what does that mean? Well, obviously, that was the beginning of a learning experience. Um, I went through three years of medical school, taking my two insulin shots. I started with test tapes and evolved ultimately to finger sticks etc etc um after three years i transferred back to the university of miami med school and people would ask me where in every new arena how is your health i was always a weightlifter so i looked healthy i was the healthiest sick person on the face of the earth Mm -hmm. and so i said no problems Internship, no problems. Residency, fellowship, no problems. I started my practice in 1981. Um, Life insurance, health, disability, long-term health care, no problems. And nobody ever questioned it. In those days, being a diabetic was a stereotype. And I did not like stereotypes. I was Mike Petipa, I was Dr. Petipa, whatever you wanted to call me. I went through 36 years, mm-hmm. and my A1Cs ranged from 4.1 to 4.7. I was extremely structured. It was by nature of who I am and what I did. Um, four years ago, my three-year-old grandson developed type 1, and I came out of the closet. I started to tell people, 
I have diabetes. I'm on the JDRF board. I um, am a philanthropist. I'm an activist. And my goal is first and foremost to make type 1 into type 9. My second goal is to continue to help uh, with the technology to make this not a disease, but a burden. And actually, my philosophy is it's a burden that forces you to take care of yourself. And again, at 73, with 52 years, no complications, um, I feel very fortunate. And my grandson, oh, about a year ago, set, two years ago, I go by the name Bubba to uh-huh. him. And my wife is Bubby, and we're the bubs. And he says, Bubba, why don't you have this? which was his Dexcom. So I put on my Dexcom, which was a game changer for many, many years. We're married 43 years. My wife would keep her hand on my forehead at night because if I dropped, became low, I would sweat. And mm-hmm. she'd wake me up and I'd get something to eat or drink. Well, now the Dexcom with my tandem control IQ allows her to sleep through the night. Are you, so, are, are you uh, telling me, Mike, that Bubby was the first... CGM is that what this is she she would just she would she'd feel you get sweaty and that would wake her up how often did that happen you know I always ran low to normal okay I did not like when my blood sugars were high Mm -hmm. it just wasn't me so uh, it could be once a month it could be once a week I didn't keep track. There was only one time that I became so low that it became a crisis. I took my insulin and then went back to sleep before breakfast Hmm. and and dropped so low that I was basically unconscious. So she, before she called 911, remember at that point I wasn't telling anybody, she called my daughter, Leah, who has Luca with type 1, and said, do you think I can call 911? Will dad be mad? And, and, <laughs> I guess. and they said, no, call 911. So they came over. They started to do all of their medical things. I respect that. And my wife said, he has diabetes. Just give him D50. Mm-hmm. And they said, well, we said, give him D50. They gave me D50. I woke up and the day went on. Yeah. So, well, all right. Well, that's a, a, that's a good overview because I have a ton of questions now. So, the first thing I want to ask you is back when you're 20 years old and you have these big plans, you're trying to go to medical. I assume Mike, you weren't just get trying to get into medical school to get out of the war, right? You actually wanted to be a doctor. So I always wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> okay. When, when you get the news about diabetes, is there any pushback from your physicians at that time? This is going to change your life. You're not going to live as long. Don't even bother. Take it easy. Did you get that talk? That's a very good question. So I'm told I have diabetes and they say, and I'm in medical school now. And they say, don't make any long-term plans. You'll be blind at 30 and dead at 40. Mm. But if you know my background, my mother was an Auschwitz survivor. Mm. She went in on her birthday the day she turned 16, got out the day she turned 17. And she told me, taught me two things. There's no such thing as you can't. If someone else can do it, you can do it. And life is hard. And living with those two premises, I didn't listen to that. Yeah, I did what I needed to do to stay healthy, to be structured. I've been very structured um, my entire life, certainly the last 53 years. I eat the same thing for breakfast, three slices of bread, a grapefruit, a yogurt, same thing for lunch, three slices of bread, a protein, an apple, and dinner. And she knew how... I don't carb count mm-hmm. because I'm so structured and I do the same thing every day. She knew exactly how to give me 150 grams of vegetable. All mm-hmm. right. So I would have the same thing and that doesn't apply to everybody and it's everybody's an individual, sure. but in my personality that probably hopefully possibly contributed to the fact that I have no complications at 73. Right. Well, I, I mean, for, so that's what I was wondering, because people your age who come on who've had diabetes as long as you have, a lot of them talk about getting that talk from the doctors. You're not going to live long, go, you know, 
live, you know, live fast, die young, leave a good looking corpse. They, they get the whole thing. Right. And I've seen it. I've seen it mold people into lives that I don't think they were going to live because they took it very seriously and they kept living constantly thinking, I- I'm not going to live much longer. And then, but everything about your story, even just a little bit of it in the beginning, didn't bend that way. So I, I guess maybe if I could understand a little more about the perspective that your mother's experience, she was in Auschwitz. Yes. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to understand her experience and how it imprinted on you as you were growing up. Well, in a few manners. Number one, probably from the time I was two years old and sleeping, she would whisper in my ear, become a doctor, become a doctor, become a doctor. (laughs) That's number one. Number two, those two philosophies, life is hard and there's no such thing as you can't, probably impressed me enough that I wasn't a diabetic. I wasn't a person who had this. Everybody gets something. And I have diabetes and I need to take care of it first and foremost by myself. And then when necessary, have a doctor give me guidance. And obviously my wife is a caretaker. That's her personality. So she knew how to weigh out my vegetables at night in the early days. It didn't affect my life whatsoever other than the fact that I didn't need to share my situation because I wasn't looking for any emotional feedback. Mm -hmm. This was my burden. This was my situation. And that panned out for you you don't you you never got into a position when you were you know older where you look back and thought maybe i should have let more people in on this i've never thought about that yeah because it worked Um, out so well for you it, it if you ask me what did i become i became a father a grandfather a husband for 43 years a doctor who had a wonderful journey My legacy is to leave the world a better place than when I got here. Mm -hmm. Diabetes is a component of my life, but it's not my life. And by virtue of the fact that I exercised and still do every day, albeit not like I used to, and I'm still very structured, and by the grace of God and technology, I can now look at my phone, my watch, at my, you know, connect tandem, um, connect etc. I know exactly where I am. Yeah. And I know how to address it. It's it's interesting because when I had kids, my son is 22 and my daughter is 18. And when we had children, my wife and I had had pulled ourselves out of a a you know, less than middle class situation and I grew up n- with nobody telling me that life was hard. It was just obvious that life was hard and that giving up would would kill you. You know what I mean? That you had to keep going, that you had to wake up in the morning with a renewed sense that this is a new day and we're going to try again, that that whole thing. But when I had kids, I started to worry, like, where would they get that from? Like, where would this perspective come from for them? Um, I And I'm wondering a little bit, I don't want to get you in trouble here with younger people, but as you're older and you're seeing people's lives get easier and easier, do you have that same thought? Like, where do people get their struggle from? Well, I think some of that depends on which generation we're talking about. Mm-hmm. My wife and I both told we have two daughters, one 40, one 39, one an equine vet, one an attorney. And we told them that the most important things in life are roof over your head, a food on the table, and Prince Charming may arrive, but he may depart. So stand on your own two feet. Right. I think what they saw in our lives, showed them it's not easy. And they had a much easier life than we had. My wife's father passed away when she was one year old. She was brought up by a mother who went to nursing school. So we had it, quote unquote, not as hard as my parents had it or her mother had it. And yes, our children had it easier, but their fundamentals of what they need to get through this difficult life are deeply instilled. And our grandchildren, Luca, my seven-year-old grandson, he knows that it's difficult, but he doesn't let it affect him. 
if he gets low, he knows now we use glucose gummies. Mm-hmm. You give him a glucose gummy and he gets on with what he's doing. Yeah. And, you know, his cousins also say, Bubba, if you're low, here's the apple juice. So it's a component of our life, but it's not our life. And I'll tell the young people, make sure you can make your own future, a roof over your head, food on the table, and don't expect things because they don't come. You have to pursue them and make, and some will happen. You won't learn from your successes. You'll learn from your failures. Just don't repeat your failures. Learn from them. You need three things. You need curiosity, you need mentors, and you need a network. And those are the three components of living a full, successful life, in my humble opinion. Mike, I, uh, you and I are from cut from the same cloth and just in a different generation because I try when I'm building this podcast to bake those messages kind of quietly into the things that we're saying. And as a matter of fact, if you really listen to how I talk about managing diabetes, it's just my life view transposed onto diabetes which is, you know, stay ahead, don't 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 work from behind, you know, you make decisions, decide what happens next when, you know, when you see what happens next, if it's right or wrong, make an adjustment. Keep going, don't give up. Uh, don't make this your central focus, um, but you still need to understand it and find other people who know what they're talking about if you don't because why why struggle to get here when somebody else is there and could just tell you how, you know, what, what path got them there? It's just, it all seems very, I don't know. It all seems very clear to me when you're talking. I was like, this guy's a brilliant person. And I, now I'm thinking it's maybe just because you agree with me, but, um, <laughs> but I, I just love the way you think about it. It's, it's fantastic. It really is. So tell me how old you were when you met your wife. Oh, goodness. Um, probably. Now, there's a question I haven't been asked in a while. Um, so let's see. I was a senior in medical school okay. in Miami. And so I was about uh, 27 okay. when I met her. And that was an interesting story. Again, I talk too much. But no, no. Basically, basically, I walked into the cafeteria, senior in medical school. I was on top of the world. And diabetes wasn't affecting me whatsoever. And I walk in and I see a friend sitting. I go, hi. He says, hi. And I see my wife, who's this pretty blonde, sitting there. And I say, hi. And she keeps looking down. Hi. She keeps looking. I said, so what time is it? And she looked up at me and said, buy a watch. (laughs) Now, that being said, I saw her a couple months later. She's walking with a pretty dress. And I said, that's a beautiful dress. You should be at a picnic, not at work. She worked in the hospital. As it turned out, she was getting her master's degree while she was working, while she was school, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So we met. We, I asked her the other day, when did I tell you I have diabetes? And she said, I asked you, why do you eat French fries and Diet Coke? I said, (laughs) I have diabetes. And it never stopped her. Maybe she knew life was hard and accepted it as part of life. Mm -hmm. And so we've gone on in our journey together. And she never judged me or characterized me. She said, this is who you are. It's one of, if not an infinite, many components of who you are. And she's now the chair of the JDRF Gala for South Florida. And so she's as much of a proponent of type 1 diabetes and making it type 9. When, what's my question here? You, You talked about not letting other people know you had diabetes. I'm trying to get a feeling for that. How Rough number, but what percentage of people who you would consider friends knew you had type 1? Well, my med school roommate, my college friend, they certainly knew. Mm -hmm. When I moved here, my next door neighbor who I fish with, I've known since college. So there were probably um, half a dozen people. So it wasn't that I was secretive. 
it was it wasn't a topic of discussion. Okay. Um, when when we would go someone's house to eat or to eat, and they said, "Oh, I made you special food," I couldn't stand that. Yeah. I wanted the same food as everybody else, and I would decide what and how much I could eat. Sure. So it wasn't so much of a secret as avoiding being treated differently. Right. So, and almost um, like if I was a big fan of football and I didn't tell people about that every time I met them, it, it kind of was that feeling. If it came up, it was fine, but you weren't leading with it. Is that the idea? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. It wasn't who I am. It was a component. And if it came up, I wasn't secretive. Right. I wasn't, it, it didn't feel as, as if it was necessary for me to have an extensive discussion. What about your patients? Do your patients know? I don't think they ever asked me that. Right. I mean, you know, I introduced myself as Mike and about 50% and, and I had a very good journey because I had a niche. Um, about 50% insisted I be Dr. Patipa, probably because I was going to do surgery on them. That made them feel more confident. Right, right. Um, I think if I told them that, that were, they were more concerned about what I knew and what I was going to do rather than, you know, I knew I wasn't going to get low. I knew I was well controlled. Mm -hmm. And so it wasn't, a, there was enough, there were enough other things to discuss about them. I'm a, what can I do for you person? I'm, I'm so interested that you didn't experience lows that you were aware of that impaired you. But you were eating a fair amount of carbs. I mean, you're describing bread at almost every meal. And I don't know, that's, and your A1C was very low. Those things almost don't seem compatible. Like in, in a modern like viewpoint that, that you didn't have any monitoring, you were eating mixed meals, but you weren't experiencing lows and had lower A1Cs. It's, it's crazy. Uh, well, you, how often do you think you tested in, in the course of a day? Well, how often I tested, um, I tested in the morning. Mm -hmm. I probably tested at 10 a.m. I certainly tested right before lunch. I tested at 3 o'clock. I tested before I ate dinner. Mm -hmm. And I tested when I came out home from the gym. My schedule was very structured. Sure. I'd wake up at 6. I'd go to the operating room at 7 or 7.30. I'd work till 6. I'd come home. I'd eat dinner. And I'd go to the gym. And I have to be very candid. Before Dexcom, I could come home from the gym and my blood sugar would be 50. Okay. Now, I don't get symptomatic at 50. I, see. I, I just don't. That's my body. Um, but maybe it's because I've always run 80, 90, 110, and I'll go up to 180. When I go up to 180, I'm not happy. Yeah. When I'm 50, if I'm at the gym now with the Dexcom and I'm working out, and it starts to beep at 70 or what have you. It's more of an infringement, but when I listen to, so yeah. I go get something to eat. For my daughter, I think of 70 is when we start paying attention to a low. I I shoot at for not going over 140 at a meal. I like to know when she's going above 120 or 130, and I, I consider 180 a high blood sugar. That's exactly how I think of it. Exactly the way I feel. Yeah. And, and that is, again, structure and perspective. Mm -hmm. The structure is you know where you want your daughter to be, and I know where I want to be. And I, Luca's seven, and he's far more labile. But you take a seven-year-old who runs and what have you, he'll plunge. Yeah. So his dad, his mom are very good at anticipating that. And I think a lot of this is being prospectively structured, mm -hmm. is knowing what you have to do rather than waiting for it to happen and then doing something. And it won't happen all the time, but you learn from your experiences. Yeah. I, I, it's funny, you use that example of him running and getting low sometimes. I thought of when my daughter was growing up that we would we would act like it wasn't going to happen, but we were aware that it could. And if it did, it was stop, fix, move on. Um, <clears throat> I just I think that probably comes out of the idea that I, I didn't I had no expectation that life was going to be easy or that it would always be fun even or that, you know, everything I wanted would happen. 
And I don't, I'm not surprised by it when it takes a wrong turn, but I don't want to live in it when it happens. I just want to, I just want to get back on the road as quickly as I can. It's a, it's, it's a, oh my goodness, excuse me. I just have one ad today, so that tells me two things. One, we'll be getting back to Mike very quickly. And two, if you're interested in buying an ad, apparently I have some space, so uh, hit me up. But for the moment, let's talk about InPen from Medtronic Diabetes. First and foremost, you can learn everything that I'm about to say and more at InPenToday.com. That's the first thing you should know. InPenToday.com. And the rest of the stuff you need to know is this. The InPen will help you take the right insulin dose at the right time because the InPen is a reusable smart insulin pen that uses Bluetooth technology to send dose information to a mobile app that's on your phone, offering dose calculations and tracking. InPen helps take some of the mental math out of your diabetes management. So if you're looking for much of the functionality that you can expect from an insulin pump, but you want to use an insulin pen, you need to use the InPen. The InPen app will show you current glucose history, meal history, dosing history, an activity log, reports for you and your physician, glucose history, active insulin remaining, and a dosing calculator. It's really wicked. It's very cool. You should go check it out at InPenToday.com. If you're ready to try, there's a form right there on the page to get you going. If you want to learn more, there's videos that you can watch. They, uh, they do talky words that tell you more about the InPen right there at InPenToday.com. So if you're looking to lighten your diabetes management load, give the InPen a shot. No pun intended. I did not say that on purpose. <laughs> it was funny, though. InPen offers 24-hour technical support, hands-on product training, and online educational resources. And I can't believe I'm saying this. It is possible. It is possible that you may pay as little as $35 for the InPen. Is that amazing? $35? Offers available to people with commercial insurance and terms and conditions apply. But $35, that uh, seems pretty fair. InPen requires a prescription and settings from your healthcare provider. You must use proper settings and follow the instructions as directed, or you could experience high or low glucose levels. For more safety information, once again, visit InPenToday.com. If I was a smart self-promoter, I would tell you all about the Diabetes Pro Tip series and all the other stuff that you'll find in the podcast right here. But instead, I'm also a podcast listener, and I know you want to get back to Mike, and I want to get you back to Mike. So just, you know, I'll tell you at the end. You don't have to hear it now. I apologize. Now you okay? Everything okay? Oh, just uh, there's a handset in the house that's not supposed to ring, and I'm supposed to have that one, but somebody put the wrong one back in here, which... By the way, I'm going to guess that that somebody was me, but <laughs> uh, yeah, it's absolutely fine. Uh, okay, so at what age so you guys meet? You guys meet in 2027. 20, you're about 27 years old, and you know what? Before we move forward in your life, let me ask one more question. We talked earlier about getting the "don't plan in the future because your life's not going to be okay" kind of talk, but you didn't. You didn't let it hit you. We think it's because of how you grew up. I'm wondering back in that time, was there a difference between how a man and a woman would have felt comfortable fighting back against a physician telling them something? Well, that's a difficult question and yeah. speculate because I've never been a woman. Sure. So I don't know how a woman might have received that. I believe it has nothing to do with gender. I think it has to do with the individual of their basic structure, their values, their expectations. Mm. And if you always know that it's going to be a challenge, and it doesn't matter whether it's diabetes or whether it's going through education or whether it's business. I have done, I've been a very fortunate entrepreneur. You know, most doctors know everything about one thing, but they don't teach us anything in medical school about anything else. So I started my practice in 81. 
when I was an oculoplastic surgeon. Most people say, what is that? So I did my residency in ophthalmology, my fellowship in plastic surgery. When I arrived in my in West Palm Beach, there were I was the third one in the state. There were a hundred in the world. So it was a niche. And then in 1982, I started my first company with per, per, the permanent eyeliner. And I became I, I had mentors and they taught me. And so I learned that we'll see is a fundamental in many things in life. We'll see what happens. You have to work at it, but we'll see how things go. I never thought about what that doctor said. It went in one ear and out the other. The only time that I ever addressed this in medical school is we were making rounds and the doctor said, the next patient is a diabetic. I said, excuse me, sir. The next patient is a person who has diabetes. And it's not a canceric or a hyper. It's a person who has something. Mm -hmm. And he went, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I I was just wondering if societally, if there was something that fit, you know, that many years ago would just, I don't, I didn't know. Like, I'm just wondering, I didn't live back then. I was just wondering if it would be harder for a female to push back against an idea that was delivered to them by an authority figure that long ago. And um, I mean, not that obviously there'd be, there'd be people who couldn't people that couldn't, but I was just wondering if there was an overall bend to how that worked because I think good. No, no, no. I was just going to say, there's a person I'm thinking of who told me their story. And I think about them often about what would have happened if they just would have pushed back against that idea back then and how their life may have been different. And, um, and, and I understand that the medicine around diabetes at that point probably was telling you that this was where you were going, except the doctors couldn't imagine that before you could get there, things would change enough to hold your health up to a point where if you did the right things, your health could get held up again till things changed again, and that you could ride that wave into better and better treatments. I think I had three components. Number one, life was going to be difficult. Number two is I did have the benefit of a medical education, mm-hmm. which has certainly helped me not only in my own case, but in guidance for other people who have type one, who have diabetes. And number three, you needed structure and take care of yourself, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, if you're a child, have parents who are the advocates, that everything is about knowledge and experience. The E word is the most priceless thing you get, and that's experience. Yeah, It takes you 18 years of clinical practice. Once you're done with your training, to stand up on a podium and say, in my experience. And so, and diabetes changes. I mean, I changed from my Medtronic, which worked for me for years, Mm -hmm. to the Tandem IQ within the last six months or what have you. And, And I had wonderful mentors who had a Tandem IQ. And I'm good friends with people who are at Dexcom. So I think that... You have to take the bull by the horns and say, all right, this bull and I are in the same ring, but one of us is going to get out and it's going to be me. Yeah. And then go from there. I usually tell people on the podcast, Mike, that if the zombies ever come, you come get me because I'm going to be okay when it's over. And that's only because of the roadblocks that my life kept running into. And I just kept finding ways around them. I just didn't stop. And say, all right, this is the thing that gets me. You, you know what I mean? Whether it was um, my family, my parents didn't stay together. I've, I'm adopted. You know, there's a number of things along the way that could waylay you. And I just was like, well, this isn't enough. I'm not going to stop here. And I still to this day, and I don't even know why, I wake up every morning like, you know, like, this is it. Like, we'll just start again. Like, if something went wrong yesterday, it's fine. That doesn't mean today is going to go this way. Today might be terrific. Let's move. You know, it's uh, really interesting how you're thinking about all this. And I'm wondering why I have a, I'm wondering why I have a depression era mentality too. <laughs> so, you know, like it's interesting, really. 
you know, the Prussian era mentality um, is a function of economics and finance and this and that. Um, and, and when it's all said and done, nobody gets out of this world alive. When I wake up in the morning, I say, this is great. I woke up. Yeah. Another time, I'm 73. <laughs> I've beaten, I've outlived the warranty in my body parts. I say that as a doctor. So th- then, Mike, let me ask you a question that I didn't know I was going to be asking somebody today. Why is it I know people your age or a little younger who grew up with survivors as parents and it tormented them instead of taught them? Like, why? Do, why are you? Life's hard. I can do it instead of life's hard. Everything's falling on my head. This isn't fair. Because I've seen, I've seen Jewish people go either way with that. Who who grow up with with survivors as parents? Well, uh, you know, again, that's probably a question I'm not wise enough to answer. Mm-hmm. I could start with it's probably your genes. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's your genetics, and then it's what you saw at home in terms of it was hard for my parents. You know, I mean, they got they they got out in 45. They met in Prague in 46, got married in 47 and moved to Israel in 48. Wow. My father was in the Haganah. They told my mother, you have to be in the army. He said, I'm not going in the army. I just got out of Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. They said, you have to. What do I do to avoid being in the army? They said, you have to be pregnant. So she went home. She called my father and I was born nine months later. <laughs> um and, and you know, that's I mean, family planning, Mike. <laughs> but, you know, and we lived there for two years. Then we moved to Montreal and Miami. And, and they had nothing, as, right. as it sounds in your case. They had nothing. So I saw what it was like to have nothing. And they taught me, or I learned by osmosis. I learned by just watching. And the, so their they, attitude you can't did, give up. Yeah, their attitude mimicked. Something hard happened. We're not giving up. And then you picked up that attitude. Do you have brothers and sisters? I do. Do they I have, have the same brothers? Similar philosophy. Similar philosophy. Um, I can tell you my two daughters, very similar philosophy. Both of them have encountered in their, you know, 40 and 39 in their education. Um, well, I didn't get this way. I'm going to do it that way. And they both succeeded by figuring out how to do it and become successful. Wow. Well, that's excellent. It really is. It's um it, it almost seems it almost seems like if you are genetically I know what you meant when you said genetically. If you're wired in the way where you can pick up this lesson and use it, right? Is that what you meant by that? Yes. Yes. If you're lucky enough to be that person and and it's laid out in front of you, it's a great launching uh launching pad into life. And I, I wonder for, and I kind of, I feel for people who don't either get that direction or don't have that innate ability, I guess. Because um, uh, those people get diabetes too. Let me tell you something, Scott. Yeah. You mentioned luck. You know what luck is? Luck is two things. Number one, the harder you work, the luckier you get. And number two, luck is when preparation meets opportunity. So you prepare, as you said, for the fact that you're eating and you have a high carbohydrate load and you know that something's going to happen. Well, that's your opportunity to address it before it happens. And I don't care whether it's what you eat or whether it is uh, whatever you do in life. Mm -hmm. It's preparing and if you're fortunate and God's in a good mood, the opportunity will be positive and not always. You know, I, I, when I stand on stage and talk about diabetes, which I just did this past weekend for the first time since COVID struck, there's a moment when I try to impart on people that I want their momentum moving forward, that I, I want them to dictate the pace. There's a different number of different ways I try to get them to be ahead of diabetes. And I used to, in past years, say, hey, who's ever been in a fist fight? And a number of people would raise their hand. You'd pick one of them and say, would you rather get hit first or would you rather hit first? And as the years go on, fewer and fewer people put their hand up when I say, have you ever been in a fist fight? And I'll tell you, the last Saturday, had it not been one gentleman in his 60s sitting there, I would have had a lot of people look back at me and say, we don't hit people. And I would have had to find a new way to paint this picture. 
But it did make me think that people's lives are getting easier through technology and 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 good government and anything that you know you, you're not worried about where your food's going to come from for the most part you know, for the most part people don't worry about security and safety and and shelter um you might worry about levels of it you know how nice is my house but for the most part homelessness is you know not what it was 100 years ago and etc and i keep thinking you know back to what i said earlier it's like is this even going to matter that people don't know how to fight through things anymore because is the technology going to make it such that they don't need to fight through it anymore? And then my question becomes, is that okay? And I think it is. I think it is. Uh, We all have our own personal perspectives. I don't think life is easier now. I think it's a relative statement from where you're, you are and what you're comparing yourself to. Mm -hmm. So, I think that if you go back 30 years and you say, well, life is easier now. Well, if you go back 60, then 30 years ago was a life was a lot easier than 60 years ago. And if you go back 120, then life is easier 60 years ago. So I think it's relative. I think that life is more challenging now. I think it's far more challenging. There are challenges that I worry about for my grandchildren, much more than my children. Uh, I worry about security. Okay. I worry about climate change. I worry about stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Um, I worry. Why do I worry? Because if I don't worry, I'd be oblivious. And if I was oblivious, then I would ignore the things that need to be addressed, at least to my best ability. Uh-huh. I worry about if something happens to me, will my wife have enough money to put food on the table and take care of herself? Yeah. You know? I mean, so I think it's still hard and I think it's becoming more difficult. Some things are becoming easier, right? but other things become more difficult. Yeah. I, I take your point and I do agree that things are, that information comes on to people so quickly now. And the expectation is that you're going to see it, pick it up, understand it and do and, and keep going, right? Like there's, I guess life was slower and by making it slower, that made it easier. The speed of it is probably what you're talking about. Like how fast things are coming at you is one of the issues. I think it was simpler. Yeah. I think your fundamental needs were simpler. It was a lot easier to, you know, pick up a dictionary or the world book encyclopedia and look up something Well, yeah, you could Google it now or what have you, but then you have to have your iPhone or your iPad, which, you know, people think are, you know, inherent things you're going to have, but not everybody has that. Yeah. Health equity. Okay. Sure. We're healthy by the grace of, again, I've said God and good fortune, but so many people don't have, I mean, how many people can't afford their insulin? Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, so, and those are inalienable rights. It's a human right to be able to buy the medicine that is going to let you live. Yeah. And and so it's not easier. It's just different. It's it's interesting too. I I say to my kids a lot, I, I used to try to bring up like Billy the Kid and I'd be like, do you know who that is? And they sort of knew it didn't really. And I said, you know, he 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 died in this century. Like like the idea of us riding out west on horses and in and carriages has only about 140 years ago. You, you know, like it's not that long ago. And where a health issue just meant you were you were just you were just left behind. Like if you got that ill, it was over. You it was nobody had the the benefit of reaching for a medication or speaking to a doctor who really had an idea of how maybe to keep you alive, even though a doctor told me yesterday, not that I didn't know this, but in a doctor's appointment, Scott, you'd be surprised, he said, about how little we know about the body. And I, yeah. And I said, no, I wouldn't be surprised, but I take your point. Yeah. There's no question. There is so much we don't know if you really become granular. Mm -hmm. Okay. And yes, we're very fortunate that you and I are sitting here and talking and that we have the technology. 
to be able to be alive, to fight the things that occur, et cetera, et cetera. Mike, when my son was two, I just told you my son was 22. When he was two, my appendix had to be taken out. It's likely that 100 years ago, that's when I would have died. You know, but it's an insane thing. My wife had terrible ear infections as a child. She may never have made it to be an adult even. It's, it's. I mean, my daughter would have been dead when she was two. And so would you have been at 20. No question. Yeah. It's fascinating. And it's, and it's beautiful. Uh, so talking about that, about advancements, I want to know, when did you first get a pump? Uh, you know, I honestly don't know whether that was 15 years ago, 20 years. It was the Medtronic Minimed. Mm -hmm. I think it was a prior generation. Yeah. So I would say that was probably an, a good estimate. Okay. Yeah, it's a popular first pump answer from people who were talking about years ago. So you get a mini med and at the moment, do you just use it as a replacement? Oh, I don't have to shoot myself with needles as much. Or are you using features like square wave boluses that it, they had those back then, right? Or no? Well, I don't know because I never used it. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, you know, I knew that I had a basal rate set mm -hmm. and I knew that before breakfast, I took 5.3 units, before lunch, 4.5, and before dinner, 2.5. And I knew that. But again, remember, I was very structured. So I used that to fit into my life okay. rather than vice versa. Right. So the, so the pump just became a, a new tool that gave you insulin without you pulling out syringes or pens. Right? And made it much easier. Made it much easier. Yeah. Right. And so you don't add a CGM. I, I guess the question is, when was your grandson diagnosed again? Four years ago. Four years ago. And he's three at that time, if I'm listening Correct. correctly. So he's three years old. And does he go on a CGM immediately? Probably within the first year. Okay. Yes. But you haven't had one for that long. Well, I got mine probably after he had had it for a year. So probably two years ago, rough and dirty. How much are you around him to see it work in that year? Well, they live here, and I mean, uh, we are with our grandchildren a lot. Okay. I had retired already, yeah, and so we're around a lot. He now loops, and he has the Omnipod and the CGM, mm -hmm. and he loops. But I can tell you, I pick up the phone even though I could guess what to do or my wife could guess what to do if he's going up or he's going down too rapidly. Yeah. And I'll call the parents and say, should I do this? Or if he's going to eat, remember his diet is very different. So if he's yeah. going to have a cheeseburger and French fries, and then he's going to want something else inevitably, you know, we'll call and say, he's going to have this. And I think that it's an estimate mm -hmm. of what he should bolus, but it's an educated estimate. Yeah. It's an estimate of experience. Right. It's interesting, too, that because your life has been so structured, you almost can't apply what you know about your good care to somebody else, especially a little kid who's running around all the time. Although I think they, the parents have seen it, mm -hmm. my daughter certainly, and my son-in-law, by virtue of having got, you know, they've been married quite a while. Um, so they know what I consider normal. Yeah. And they may not adhere to that 100% or 80%, but that's their aspiration. Right. No, no, I understand. So when you saw him using that CGM for the first year, that Dexcom, did you start thinking, oh, that's interesting, but I'm past that? Or did you think, I might want to do this? I didn't think anything. He said to me, Bubba, why didn't you have one? <laughs> I can force it on you. Well, listen, not for nothing, that might run in the family because you're on the podcast because your daughter was like, hey, you should have my dad on the podcast. So, <laughs> well, I, I hope I fulfilled no, everything. You've been you terrific. No, no, more and more. It's, it's wonderful. Um, so, okay. So, he, so it wasn't something that you saw and thought, I should add this to my arsenal. You didn't have that feeling. And number one, I don't know if it was a year or if it was six months. Uh, no, my arsenal fulfilled what I needed 
Um, my A1Cs were okay. I was doing the things I wanted to do. And once I started the Dexcom, I said, as my wife put it, this is a game changer. Yeah. Oh, and, oh, yeah. And, and I've heard that term from many people. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you one of the most gratifying things, and this is education and evolution, is you can go anywhere now. You can go vers- and, and see people who have a CGM on their arm or on their what have you, on their leg. I mean, I keep mine on my you know abdomen on the side. Um, and they have a pump, whether it be a wireless pump or a pump, and you see the wire. I mean, the things that have become absolutely normal mm-hmm. become just part of society rather than who you are has been so gratifying that uh, it's just and and the more we educate the more people become educated and he has no reservation taking his shirt off and jumping into the pool or the ocean and my daughter has never once tried to hide her devices ever i've never seen her I mean, maybe at her prom, she tried to put it somewhere where, you know, for her pictures. But even at that, when she was a young kid, um, I remember her getting a school photo and the photographer said, tell your parents, we can Photoshop that thing off your arm. And my daughter Mm -hmm. was like, what? Like, I don't need you to do that. You know, like, it's fine right there. I don't care if it's in the picture. Uh, It's really wonderful that that everybody has that feeling because it's it's it can be, I guess I should say. For a lot of people, newly diagnosed, especially adults that are thinking about themselves, and I guess people thinking about their children, they'll say, well, I don't want a thing on me. I don't want to be a robot, that kind of stuff. And to your point, the minute they try it, they let go of that thought almost immediately. You know, Number one, it's very healthy to not be concerned about having it. Mm-hmm. And, and remember, I was concerned for a long time. So it's very healthy now that I look back at myself and I look. And again, it was a different time. Sure, sure. It was a different time. Yeah. Um, but now everybody has it. Yeah. And, and because it's become more prevalent. And, and I wonder, as you're talking, if you were 20 years old today and you got diabetes, if you would handle it differently just because of who you are, but in this different time, I think you probably wouldn't hide it as much. Not that you were hiding I, it, but I think you'd be more open yes. with it. Yeah, you're right. I would not hide it at all. Um, There's no question Mm. that time, technology and evolution has changed diabetes. I mean, doctors don't tell their patients don't make any long term plans. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now you get now you get there should be no difference in your lifespan versus someone else's. If you can do you alluded to it earlier, didn't you? That being aware of your health, being acutely aware of your health at a young age, if you if you if you aren't rolled over by that feeling, but you kind of embrace it and go with it, it almost leads to a healthier lifestyle. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, yeah. I'm telling you, um, I mean, I started lifting weights when I was 18, but when I was 20, I was a regular exerciser, and for the last you know, 53 years, um, unless there's a real surge, I never missed the gym. I mean, before we met this morning, I did my breakfast, I did my stretches, I did my cardio. Um, you know, the bottom line is that diabetes should force you to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you do, I look at my 73-year-old friends who have nothing, and they weigh 260 pounds, and they don't watch what they eat, and, and they just take it for granted. I and and all of us with diabetes, we don't take it for granted. Yeah, good day is a great day. Right. There's a big difference between being given a life where you say it's nebulous, right? I might, I may, I may get hit by a truck next week, but I might live till I'm 80, and we all choose to believe we're going to live till we're 80, right? Nobody walks around. I mean, unless I guess it's a bit of a mental illness, worrying like that all the time. But most people just say, I'm going to be the one. Like my son came to me the other day. You see this lady in the paper? 
lived as long as anybody's ever lived. And she's talking about eating chocolate and smoking cigarettes. And I said, that's all just confirmation bias. She's just randomly lucky. If you ate chocolate and smoked cigarettes your whole life, you'd probably be dead when you were 60. You, you know, so good for her, you know, but it's interesting that we point her out as the, I don't know, that's the weird that that's the story you heard in the paper that day that, that, you know, that people are, you know, can smoke cigarettes their whole life and eat chocolate all day long and live to 120, whatever. I mean, she was forever old. She, you know, and, um, and, and it's just, uh, I do wish, gosh, I don't wish it would be nice if everybody could feel their mortality for a second at a time that would allow them to make better decisions to expand their lifetime, I guess. Well, yeah. first and foremost, the lady in the newspaper is in the newspaper because she's the exception, right? not the rule. That's why she's in the newspaper as the exception. And you're right. You have to not, not advocate, but you have to recognize nobody gets out of this world alive. Mm-hmm. And you need to do the best you can for the quality of life you have while you're here, both in what you do for yourself and what you do for others, how you leave the world when you're gone. I mean, those are the fundamental values that you have to recognize. And taking care of yourself. And, and, And maybe when they told me that when I was 20, was one of the reasons I said, I'm not going to listen to that. Right. That's not, that's ridiculous. You can't tell me what's going to happen in 10 or 20 years. I can't tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. Yeah. So I'm going to live my days the way I, the right way. It makes me wonder how many people your mom heard in that camp say, we're not getting out of here. And how that, maybe did that strike her and make her think like, I'm going to. You know, I'm I'm going to. She probably never thought that far forward. She thought about how am I going to get through today? This is it. Yeah. Okay. And, and that was, and that's the key. Diabetes is the same. Yeah. How am I going to get through this meal successfully? How am I not going to let it control me? And that's basically what you have to do is control to the best of our ability and with sure. the technology today, control our own future, our own fate. And there's no, you, and that's like trying to predict predict or project what's going to happen in the stock market tomorrow. Mm-hmm. You can't. Yeah. You can't. It, it, what you just said was, as it was just a very important addition to what I began to say. Like that idea of like, I'll do it, I'll fight it. That's a nice idea. But then you actually have to do it. And you don't do it by stepping back and looking over the next two years. You do it by this next this next thing. Whatever the next thing is, we, we, we get past this, we go to the next thing and the next thing. And the way you transitioned it to the idea of bolusing for a meal is, is brilliant. Um, can I ask you how you handle, psychologically, how do you handle when a meal doesn't go right? I make it right. Yeah. You're just <laughs> you don't sit and stare at a high blood sugar. No, no, yeah. no, no. I, I mean, I ask. First, I anticipate prospectively before. All right. What do I think is going to happen if I eat this, that, or the other? Mm-hmm. And then I try to the best of my ability, and I'm not always right, Yeah, to prevent the problem. And if I eat and then I'm high, I'll say, well, okay. Now with the control IQ, it certainly has added another factor of control. All right. So if I'm 160 in the olden days, I would bowl as a unit because I knew that would take me down 40 points. Right. But now I know in a few hours that the control IQ is going to take me down to 120. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not as much of an advocate of controlling myself. And, and I think that that algorithm is, as your ninja control IQ person, I think that, and he was from Montana, so much more brilliant than I am. I didn't even know all the things that he was talking about and looking at. Terrific, yeah. But I know that it's helped me. Yeah. And, you're, and the most interesting part of that 
is that you're very comfortable with it. Like as as involved as, you, as you've been and as structured as you've been, you you don't look like you fought changing to a more modern way of you just you seem happy that it works and that's good. I spent an inordinate amount of time learning. Mm-hmm. I have a friend who has tandem IQ. Um, I have a second, and and they never hesitate. One came over and started me. And never hesitate if I call to answer. It's a wonderful thing to have mentors. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, and- well, Mike, this was wonderful. You're terrific. Um, I want to ask you if there's anything we haven't spoken about that you wanted to. I just want to tell your audience, first and foremost, do everything you can and everybody you know to make type one into type none, whether it be JDRF or any other organization, because I think we're all on the same page. And number two is until it becomes type none, and I'm a guarded optimist on this because I'm involved in that world, is take care of yourself and learn. Just get educated. And that education will give you experience. And then ultimately, you'll be a mentor for someone else Mm -hmm. that's going through the same questions. Yeah, that's wonderful. Uh, I agree. Let me ask you a a lighthearted question. Do you still have any of the tools from working? Because I'd like it if my eyes were just a little open and brighter than they (laughs) are. Um, You know, it's interesting. I go to a center, Caridad Center, which takes, provides healthcare for people who are homeless, uninsured, migrants, immigrants, this, that, and the other. And there's residents from the university. And for me, to have that opportunity is great. So could I take care of you? Yes, but I have to get you into there. (laughs) Well, I don't think I fall into those categories. I just, I, I, I saw a photo of myself the other day and my son's like, are your eyes closed? I'm like, I don't think so. Where do you live? New Jersey. Well, if you text me or email, I'll give you the names of people. No kidding. I never even considered it until I realized what you did. And I was, I was listening to you talk and I was like, maybe I can, maybe I can look more awake. Uh, Mike, this is terrific. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Pleasure was mine. And thank you for what you do. Oh, you're educating. The population is just priceless. I appreciate that very much. Did I not tell you Mike was terrific? I did not lie. Thank you so much, Mike, for coming on and telling us that that multi-layered story. Really great. Also want to thank InPen from Medtronic Diabetes and remind you to go to InPenToday.com to get started. There are links in the show notes of your podcast player or any audio player you're listening in. Uh Uh-oh, Arden's blood sugar just went over 120. And there are also links at JuiceBoxPodcast.com to Impen and all of the sponsors. When you click on my links, you're supporting the show. If you're looking for the Diabetes Pro Tip series, the Bold Beginnings series, Diabetes Variables, Defining Diabetes, Defining Thyroid, Defining Celiac. If you're looking for any, do we have a Defining Celiac series? Hold on. That might just be something I meant to do that I haven't done yet. This is interesting as I tax my own brain. Let me just go to the private Facebook group. I'll click on the Feature tab, and there's lists of all of the series within the podcast here. Uh, Pro Tips, Variables, Quick Start Guide, How We Eat. Ask Scott and Jenny, Defining Thyroid, Type 2 Stories. Need more of those, by the way. If you have type 2 diabetes, get a hold of me. More Ask Scott and Jenny. So many of those. Great episodes. Uh, Here's everything about fat, bolusing for fat and protein. Popular episodes list. Talking with children about diabetes. Disordered eating celiac and diabetes see there's a whole i know it it's not defining celiac it's a talking i should do a defining celiac series is that on my list 
who am I talking to right now? Mental wellness, uh, defining diabetes, after dark, pregnancy, bold beginnings, algorithm pumping, algorithm pumping with Omnipod 5. That's it. Okay, so apparently I don't have a defining celiac series, but you know what? I'm going to make one. I just talked myself into it right now. Anyway, go to Facebook, find the private Facebook group, Juice Box Podcast Type 1 Diabetes. Join the group, answer the membership questions. We'll let you right in once we know you're a real person. And then you can go up to the feature tab and see all of that for yourself. I believe there's also a link to that group at juiceboxpodcast.com. Thanks very much. I'll be back very soon with another episode of the Juicebox Podcast.